Good morning. Welcome, beloved children of God. Uh, today we pick up at the end of a two-part series, um, working through a couple of passages in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, before I read the scripture, I want to let you know that I again wore socks. Whoever got the the places we will go socks, I'm wearing those today. So. Shout out to you. I also have some good Bob Ross socks and Star Wars socks, socks of paintings, all kinds of things. Uh, today we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6 and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 2. Someone has testified somewhere. What a precise phrase that is. Someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, or mortals that you care for them? You've made them for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Us, these mortals, these things that are confusing to be mindful of, we are below the angels. Who we learned, reading last week, Jesus is above, right? And now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying... I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it's clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because Jesus himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. The word of God for the people of God. I'm just going to take a little sip of water here. Thank you, Peter. Desiree has a cousin named Dylan. Dylan is a very funny guy. And he likes to tell a story from childhood. So Desiree's family has a little cabin out in the woods on Anderson Island that her father built from the ground up. He's very proud of this cabin. Her father is not a small man, and he's relatively uh, strong. 
And growing up, Dylan thought that her father, Ray, must be some kind of superhero. And Ray loved that. He did not dissuade Dylan of this belief. And he happened to know that out on the property there was a tree that was dead. And it had been dead for a very long time. And he was trying to impress Dylan even more with his superpowers. And so he told Dylan uh, that if he picked up this rock that was standing there and threw it against the tree, he could knock the tree down. He was so strong, he could knock the tree down just by throwing a rock at it. And so he picked it up, and he threw this rock, and it hit the tree, and it started tilting, and then timber, it fell. And young Dylan had his mind blown. He was convinced that Uncle Ray had superhuman strength, that he could push over trees if he wanted to. And then as Dylan got a little older, he learned that that was not true. Uh, Though he still likes to tell this story of his youthful belief uh, in the superpower of his uncle. I think uh, that Many of us have an experience, a moment where we realize our parents are merely human. Or those who have been entrusted with our care are just human. Um, Maybe some of us never thought that wasn't the case. But I think it's often the case that we have a vision of someone. Someone we love, uh, someone we respect, someone with whom we're in relationship that seems to us a little bit more than human. And then something will happen, and it will change our opinion. My father is not a tall man. He is five foot seven. When I was growing up, he was fluctuated between 230 and 250 pounds of muscle. As a power lifter, he held records in various places as he traveled around the military. He was not a weak man. And so I was sometimes very scared of him when I did things that were uh, against the rules. I grew up being spanked when I violated the rules of the house. And I remember clearly the first time I did something I wasn't supposed to do, and my father gave me a whooping, and I did not cry. I did not shed a tear. I held it all in. I went back to my room, unable to sit on my bed, but I did not cry. And I, my vision of my father changed on that moment. I was no longer afraid of my father. I still had reasons to not want to break rules, but the idea that that would bring some kind of punishment I could not bear went away. Last week, we talked about the first chapter of Hebrews. Um, This incredible description of Christ being the exact representation of God, the radiance the sunbeam of the image of God, the one through whom and in whom all things were created and held together. The writer of Hebrews tells us up front, Jesus is greater than the angels, and there is nothing in the universe that fits together without his power and presence and and the influence of his word at creation. And we read Paul in multiple letters say something similar. The firstborn of all creation, the one in whom and through whom all things exist. This claim of the Christian tradition that Jesus of Nazareth, born in a stable, is the king of the universe. 
And we talked about what that means for us when we think about who God is and the clearest picture of who God is that we have being in the life of this one who is the exact representation. And then just a few verses later, the writer of Hebrews tells us, this one in whom nothing exists without being in his presence and his hand, this one became lower than the angels, became a creature, one that's confusing why anyone would be mindful of. And we get this story of Jesus as a human, I remember the first time I realized Jesus was human. I mean, that was something intellectually I knew for a long time, right? He walked around, he wore sandals, he ate fish, he did those kinds of things. Like, we always claim, make the claim that Jesus is human. But I had this moment where it hit me what that meant. I was a teenager. I don't remember if I was reading this passage or if I was in a youth event and heard it read or in church or something like that. And someone was reading a passage out of a book written by Max Lucado, one of the early Max Lucado books. If you're familiar with the world of Christian publishing, he's a very famous man. Uh, and he tells this story of Jesus uh, in vivid detail about Jesus growing up, a story about Jesus growing up. And he makes the claim, and I'm reading this as a teenager, that Jesus had pimples. And it blew my mind. Because I had, one, I had pimples because my body was going through some things. And two, because I'd never seen an image of Jesus with a pimple. I didn't have stories of Jesus popping his pimples as a teenager. I didn't know what to make sense of this. And Max tells the story that he preached that in a sermon. And a woman came up to him afterwards and said to him, My Jesus had no blemishes. And I think we often think in that way. Right? We make confession that God became human and walked among us and dwelt among us. But we don't think about what that sometimes means, right? At least I don't. I don't always make the connection. And since that time, I've read more theology than anyone should ever read. And others make similar kinds of claims, and they take it even farther than polite Max Lucado. They talk about Jesus' bodily odors and functions and all the things that humans do that we confess that Jesus did. Right? Jesus was very viscerally, very mundanely human. And it made me think, you know, what makes us human? A lot of anthropologists, I think I've shared this before, have made the claim that the thing that separates humans from the rest of the mammals on earth is that we tell stories. We tell them across time. We don't know of another creature that tells stories. We're storytelling animals, is the way some anthropologists describe it. Another thing, many philosophers and theologians have suggested that the things that make humans human uh, is that we are aware of the fact that we will die, and we reflect on it, and we make meaning of it, and it shapes the way we build our societies and our lives and our families. And we don't have evidence that other animals do this. We don't know what's going on in their head, but it appears to us they act out of instinct in very predictable kinds of ways. And humans... Uh, as one of, uh, as, as one book, uh, describes it in its title, are predictably irrational. 
they are not capable of being uh, totally predictable about what it is that they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And it does always seem that our actions lead to the highest likelihood of survival. Right? I mean, we all experience this by seeing just how some people drive, right? We, we don't always act, it seems, purely out of instinct, but out of some awareness of something, uh, an end that is coming and something that might be beyond it. All of that is to, to try to find the ways that we are separated from the rest of creation, unique from, particular within. But one of the things it means to say that we are human is to say that we are creatures. That God is God and we are not. That we are bound up with this creation that we're in. And we often live like we are not by how we create our societies and the way we utilize the natural resources that are here. We act like we are somehow above creation and integrated within it. But Hebrews reminds us that it was a radical thing for the one in whom and through whom all things hold together to make himself lower than angels and join us as creatures. And it's a radical thing because the creator becoming a creature is supposed to be categorically impossible. The artist never becomes the piece of art that they create. And yet this is what Christians claim happens in Christ. And when we realize that, and when we pay attention to that, we see scriptures differently. And so we read a story of Jesus crying when his best friend dies, and we see a human being. We see Jesus entering a temple and turning over tables and being angry that people would treat the house of God as a place to make some money. I don't know what Jesus said, but I assume some of the words weren't nice. I actually do know some of the words, and he called them snakes, broods of vipers. We read that Jesus gets hungry and thirsty and tired, so tired he sleeps through a storm on the sea. And then I remember that last night I was supposed to go to a delicious meal and I ended up staying in a veteran hospital for hours. I was so hungry. And I was so tired. And I remember that Jesus was as well. And we remember that as the state executes this person, they identify as a criminal. And he hangs on a cross being publicly humiliated. Some of the last words he says are to the friend who sticks by his side. He says, take care of my mother. And we remember that even as Jesus is saving the world through his suffering, he's a human, and he's talking to his friends, and he's making provisions for his mother. Christ humbled himself. This is part of the claim of Christianity, and it is actually, in my opinion, one of the most radical claims that we make. The one just the chapter ago we are told is above the angels now lowers himself to join the beloved children of God. But that's not the whole story. It's not that just that Jesus became human, but that Jesus shared in our suffering. That's what we are told in the passage. 
Jesus knows what it's like to think that maybe a family member won't be cared for or a friend might be feeling pain or he might not see a friend another time or he might be a little bit tired or a little bit angry or a little bit hungry. Even beyond that, we know that the one we call Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, tasted death. God knows what it's like to die. That is something that again should categorically not make sense. And yet it is the claim of faith that we make. If one of the things that sets humans apart is we're aware of the fact that we'll die and we reflect on it and we suffer in light of it, then when the story of Jesus, we see that Jesus entered fully, God entered fully into the human condition. But it's not the end of the story. We also learn that Jesus conquered death. And the language of the writer of Hebrews destroyed it, even as it still hangs on in our day. And there's lots that can be said about the fact that Jesus conquers death. The hope that it brings, the promise that it gives us, the future it gives us a peek into But that's not the point for the writer of Hebrews. The point for the writer of Hebrews is that the fact that Jesus became a human and suffered and tasted death and conquered it and is now back on his throne, the point of all of that is that we have a high priest who mediates on our behalf knowing what it means to be human. Knowing what it means to suffer and to die, knowing what it means to have a pimple or some body odor in a world before they created deodorant, to be tired from walking long, dusty roads, to cry when his beloved people die. And because the one we call God, the exact representation of the image of God in the world, the one who holds it all together, in his very existence, that one is able to help us when we're tested. Some translations say when we're tempted because he knows what it's like to suffer. This is the claim that is unique to the Christian tradition. That the one God who created everything became a creature and is able to help Because that God knows what it's like to be like us. I know of no other religious tradition that makes that claim. There are claims adjacent, but it is the Christian tradition's claim that our God mediates on our behalf because he shared in our suffering. You know... Sometimes what we actually want is the all-powerful Charlton Heston voiced or Morgan Freeman voiced God on high above everything, in control of everything, making meaning out of every single minute of our existence. There's something deeply attractive about that picture. The God with the flowing white beard and the booming 
voice sitting on a throne watching every moment like he's Santa Claus. But what we have, according to the writer of Hebrews, is a God who joined us in our fleshliness, in our weakness, in our humanity and our suffering and even in our death. We claim we will live forever because our God died. There is something counterintuitive about the claim, and yet it's the claim that we inherit. And in this, we have a God who became human, who showed us a new way and paved that way for our own victory over death because we know it has been conquered We know we will share in the resurrection of the one who defeated it. Our God, Jesus of Nazareth, the one we call the Christ, the Messiah, understands us in intimate ways in our humanity, not just as praise robots, not just as ones who deserve to be thrown a bone, but as one who shared in the experience with us. This is the claim that we make every time we take the bread and the cup. We claim we have a Lord who knows what it's like to be human, to cry, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired, to be angry. We have a Lord who shares our suffering. It's not just an intellectual knowledge that suffering happens, but that intimate knowledge of having experienced it himself. We have a Lord who mediates on our behalf. The story of Hebrews is that Christ sits at the right hand of God and mediates for us, is the one who expresses to God the Father what it means to be human, what it means to suffer, to fear death, to translate for us to the one who created everything, what it means to be part of the creation. It's a radical claim. And we had a Lord who conquered even death, who endured suffering and anger and tears and hunger and even death and came out the other side in a body, walking around, eating fish with friends, and promising a future where all pain, all suffering, end, and all people are at the throne of God. The title of my sermon today is Jesus Christ, Human Being. That simple but in my opinion, one of the most transformative claims that we make. And so I leave you with two questions. When did you first learn that Jesus was a human? And what does that mean for you as a human today? Because our God, the one who makes it so that we know death is not the final word, shared in our humanity, endured our suffering, and conquered even death.